0: Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, A hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel. And today, we welcome Dane Sanders to the podcast. Dane is the president at Clanton and Associates, started by a woman you may have heard of, Nancy Clanton. They're here locally in Colorado, just up the road outside of Boulder, Colorado. Dane, he has a voice on a lot of different topics in the lighting universe. He's been a speaker at conferences like Lightfair, Fair, Green Build, ArcLead, and he's a frequent guest lecturer at our alma mater, CU Boulder, on daylighting, lighting, lighting controls, and advanced lighting design. He's not a theorist either, he's a practical guy. And him and his team at Clanton, they walk the walk. They have a passion for pushing lighting and progress. They put into practice advanced ideas and technology. And they don't just work through challenges of real-world applications, but they really take the time and energy to recognize what they've learned and share that with the broader-lining community, making sure people understand something... that really pretty much puts all that to proof in The Practice is Real is the fact that they're experts in nighttime illumination, and they literally helped create the industry's model for responsible outdoor lighting. Dane, you and Clanton Associates have done a lot over the career of that firm, and you're the president running the show now. Congratulations. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Sam. I appreciate it. That was quite an introduction. One of those things reminded me of the first time I met you. I was teaching a course for detailing at CU Boulder, and I think I, I may have found out that you were the mascot at that moment.
0: Potentially,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> I almost dug out your assignment to see how well you did. But I think I remember it was a pretty good detailing Assignment. So, congratulations on that. And I think you've done a little more with your career since.
0: I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say I love lighting. I love lighting design. Uh, I'm a victim to the crash of 2008 and never getting a job as a full time lighting designer. Although the offer I got for $12.50 an hour was enticing at the time. That firm who offered it to me shall remain nameless. Dane, uh, you've got a hell of a passion for lighting you've done so much personally in your own career and you've obviously been a huge force in Clanton and everything they've done. Uh, Before we get into the topic today and really dive in to what is a conversation around urban lighting and smart cities and how lighting is not only so much more but has a potential to influence and create standards in ways we never thought, tell everybody who's Dane? And how'd you get your start in lighting?
1: I guess, you know, gosh, going back as a kid, I just loved drawing, I loved art, and I was good at math, I enjoyed that. I wanted to find something that combined that artistic side and mathematics side, I thought at the time that that was architecture and really went to apply for colleges looking at, at architecture programs. You know, had to kind of stay in state for family kind of things. Money was a <laughs> consideration. But as I went to University of Colorado for the first time to, to kind of walk around and I have some engineering in my family and uh, walked around the architecture and environmental design which was great but no one was around then we went kind of over to the engineering side and i was like i don't know if i want to do engineering i, want, I really like the architecture but i went up to the fourth floor of the civil and architectural engineering program at the engineering campus there. And David Delora was sitting in his office. This is a late afternoon on a summer afternoon. And he takes the time to not only tell us a little bit about the program, but took us on a whole tour of the engineering center. Got to see like structures labs and earthquake lab and other things that were just amazing to me. And the fact that somebody just spent two hours with me and then started talking about like well if you still want to go into architecture you can go get your master's and people have done that and you know architectural engineering you get this breadth of kind of understanding of the systems of buildings and lighting happened to be one of those. And as I found out of, you know, a couple years later, after taking my first lighting courses, that it was lighting that had the most interaction with architecture, the most ability to transform space. So David Delora was my first inspiration. And then we, as you've experienced as well, Sam, the, you know, going to the lighting retreats in Estes Park, just amazing experience, getting a chance to meet with industry professionals that were doing this and living their careers. So getting a chance to see what Chip Israel was designing and Teal Brogdon and seeing really how light does transform space and that that creative side, this balance of engineering, but also art and architecture, technology, and like it's just it's such a rich design field.
0: That's a really good statement. It's a rich design field, right? Architectural engineering, but lighting within the belt environment, both interior and exterior. There is so much as so many of us know, that lighting can influence, and frankly, make or break. When you look at your career, you've done a lot of different stuff in that realm. Talk to me a little bit about your progression of, and also Clanton's progression, I think of, you know, the project basis, to the planning, to the standards, to these bigger challenges that you guys are now tackling.
1: Starting off in my career, and, and and those first inspirations, it really was about the project, that individual space or building. And you can do some really amazing things there, but then you start to realize, how do I make a bigger impact on the industry as a whole? And this is where Nancy was just such an inspiration, has been throughout my 20-year career, with working with Nancy particularly, that she would take on these big challenges, these things that a lot of the industry at the time wasn't even paying attention to dark skies and sky glow, reducing energy when incandescent was still the main source of light. And, you know, I heard some designers say, oh, there's there's just no way we can do this. And it, she got so much pushback, but still like pushed and pushed and pushed. And to see that kind of longevity and, and her tenacity and her resilience in maintaining her core beliefs was just inspiring.
0: Talk to me about, I mean, how that's transpired. There's a story for people in Denver that will remember Clanton's involvement uh, on a specific public transit project and convincing people about, you know, what was on paper versus what they observed and taking the understanding of the power of persistence and how that can change not only one opinion, but a whole code, a whole planning phase Mm -hmm. of a department.
1: And it's, it's not even just persistence in that sense. I mean, what we've learned and what we generate is is creating trust with our clients. Part of that is the engagement process that we have a lot to teach. But before we can teach and actually have someone understand and listen, we have to listen to them. So that understanding what their issues are. Why do you light your stations to this high light level? It was five-foot candles minimum, minimum. minimum at the corner which turns into like 15 foot candles. For those who know in the lighting industry, like it's just ridiculous amount of light at night. But it was, you know, we had to find the head of security and others within the organization, find the right people to, to, to talk to. And then lighting is such an experience of, you, you can't just talk numbers. With somebody, nobody really understands what those numbers mean, especially at night. Our vision is changing so much that our perception of light is changing all the time, too. So you have to go out and experience it. And we do this on a pretty regular basis is where we take our clients out, create a common experience, visual experience, take surveys, and then we tell them the numbers. And you start to see that people's perception is not always very well correlated with light level. And, you know, it's really the quality of light what does the space feel like? Architecture, lighting, vertical surfaces. You can have a very low light level that's fairly uniform and you can still see very well. One of their favorite spaces happened to be um, a Civic Center Park, which was like 0.3 foot candles average, but it was 0.3 foot candles almost throughout and there was good vertical light. So then we were able to convince them to reduce the light level, especially around this beautiful fountain where we knew that if we met their normal criteria, it was just gonna wash out all the lighting from the fountain and then develop like transition zones to allow people to adapt to the higher light level of the platform that they didn't really budge much on the platform light at the time, but eventually they ended up changing all of their criteria based on this engagement process.
0: It's interesting because you sat there, you listened to them, uh, you took them on the journey you knew you needed to take them on to encourage them to maybe make a better decision in terms of how much energy they're using or what it means to be comfortable and how that plays out in the real time environment. You're quickly going from somebody is putting, you know lines and dashes on plans to understanding that specific environment, to then understanding, in this case, a whole set of rail stations, a central plaza that it's coming to, that's obviously going to be in multiple different communities around a metropolitan area. And your tiny little passion for lighting is making this big difference in so many different places and spaces, so many different pockets of diversity in a town. What's it like to understand that the evolution of the fundamental nature of designing light and you know creating an environment with it is now evolving
1: part of the master planning that's one of the things i've started you know t- it takes a long time in <laughs> over a, a career to kind of understand how you can make an impact on a larger scale and nancy knew that and was already there when i came but it t- took me a while to understand and this kind of en- engagement process but you know seeing how we do not only guidelines for buildings you know there are t- things that we can write standards, right? Once we can write a standard or write a guideline for others to be able to repeat what we're doing. As you know, like lighting designers are 4% of the entire industry. So there's all these, you know, electrical engineers, sales reps, there's all sorts of people doing design lighting spaces out there. But when we can write something that sets that guideline for every project, to follow those principles, then we can affect all those projects rather than just the single building or single project that we worked on.
0: And what a gift to people that don't even know it. You can't help but understand and acknowledge the fact that people are looking for a way to make a suggestion and collect a fee for it. But uh, a code and a standard is something that they may lean on. Frankly, sometimes it's required. They're called codes for a reason. They're also called standards for a reason, but it's also cool because those things evolve as technology evolves, as the needs of the occupants evolve, as things change, as the world is now morphed and imagined into something that it wasn't 50, 60, 70 years ago, right? When you look at where you're at today, how does that transform itself into now using lighting, but you're not focused on lighting?
1: It's really interesting looking at street lighting, outdoor lighting, in some respects, some people are like, there's no design, that's an engineering thing or and maybe street lighting for a long time there was wasn't a whole lot of change the technology was the light sources were still high pressure sodium maybe metal halide we were fighting for most of my 20 years trying to get white light into the outdoor environment for broader spectrum better vision and now all of a sudden, technology is changing and we had to reconsider standards when leds started to come out and be a major play in that and that's where our background and research took a role like okay we got to go figure out like how are people seeing in this new light source in this new environment so it's become a very exciting space i think just the science of vision is still especially in at nighttime, going from photopic to scotopic and the mesopic range still kind of a little nebulous and but we you have to experience it like so we're we're out in seattle doing a a big study taking, it's got like 300 people, citizens on tours through this Looking at different color temperatures, different distributions, and and different dim levels of light, and realize like I'm programming there, we get the wireless control system set up, and I say, okay, now dim down to fifty percent, and I see him touching the iPad, and like, well, have you done it yet? He's like, yeah, it's at fifty percent. I look at the luminous meter, I didn't even see the dimming happen. When it happens slowly, you don't notice it. And now we're standing under this, what we feel is like it's the same amount of light, measuring fifty percent, and that effectiveness of the LEDs. It's, it makes you start to wonder, like, what are, what are these standards? What is the criteria? We've done this, repeated this in different settings. And you have to almost get down to 30% dimming before people start to say, ah, now I can see that it's dimming.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, it is. And you start to wonder, like, how much energy are we? Wasting. wasting, and you know our standards. I don't think are quite there yet. There's been a lot of. Work. I mean, the IES has done so much work. They're doing, still continuing to do great work, trying to <laughs> redefine metrics and study things. So being part of that community
0: is really important. It's incredible how much tech changes things. How fast the whole world has evolved. Outdoor lighting is extremely important for safety and security reasons. It's also potentially more accessible than it's ever been right? With the evolution of LED. Uh, makes more sense to put it out. Uses less energy. There's a better payback on stuff like that. Distributions are better. There's the whole uniformity conversation around, well, maybe we can space pulls out. Maybe we can do other things with this, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, wait, what? Hold on. We're putting a point of infrastructure in. Wait, what else do we need now? Everybody wants Wi-Fi. Everyone wants 5G. Everybody wants all this stuff. I want to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want you to tell us a story about your light bulb moment at Clanton when you said holy smokes we can write the standards for this we can help people understand how not only this is good for lighting but everything else the community needs sound good sounds good hey it's Sam real quick the light pod is brought to you by LightEye. A hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment. They're focused on you, the community, telling your stories, empowering new ideas, and elevating the voice of lighting design. If you want to contribute to Lotteye, if you want to be a part of it, if you want to help fund this creative content engine, check them out at lytei.com And welcome back. Over the break, Dane and I were catching up just a little bit more about what's really driving this evolution of the outdoor lighting space and everything else that's being combined into it. We know without a doubt, we feel more comfortable in a safe space. A safe space is generally created by being able to see what's around you, which is generally speaking created by light. At night, light is a bit more hard to come by, moon isn't quite as bright. It has an attitude, doesn't always come up and set at the same time. And outdoor area lighting uh, with LED technology is fantastic. Danny, you were talking a little bit about, you know, how we can dim it a lot down, we can save energy. And that's really kind of where this all comes back to is creating the right environments for humans and people to experience what they need to experience, but not at the expense of our long-term existence on this earth. we got to use less energy. We've got to be more efficient. And so many things go into that. What's going on?
1: I guess having you know, this opportunity with what, what street lighting was just that for, a, for such a long time. But as we're starting to look at like, we're in this critical point on this earth, we need to make big changes quickly. And lighting is actually a, a pretty significant component of energy use, but it's not the only thing that's gonna get us to zero carbon solutions. Like we're really trying to push towards zero carbon in buildings, in the outdoor environment, just and the utilities will get there, but not necessarily fast enough. Uh, so what can we do as a lighting designer, you know, and, and engineers that are trying to tackle this problem and start to realize the the interface of infrastructure and technology uh, coming back to this to street lighting that's an opportunity for now getting not only power but getting communication and fiber optics to all street lights getting that fiber infrastructure might include more so we need to, it's not just about lighting we need to be talking to the cities and all the departments about what communications do you need for the future of where you're going? And we start looking at plans for cities to go zero carbon, to go using microgrid technology and distributed renewable energy to become more resilient. I feel like a lot of these things can sound politicized very quickly. But when you you start talking about energy security, the Department of Defense, has put in some of the first microgrids. They know, well, they, they have a critical needs, but it, then we start getting hit with fires in California that PG&E has to, like other utilities, have to shut off power when fire danger is too high.
0: And the reality is these weren't built with the idea that every neighbor could have their own power source on the block. It was build the coal power, fire plants, build the nuclear power plants, build the infrastructure that costs a fortune and send it down the line and don't worry about it. There was nothing wrong with it when it came to be like it, it, it was logical, it made sense, it was affordable, but we're just not in that world anymore. And yeah. everybody recognizes that.
1: Yeah. And it, the the more we can get distributed energy, whatever that is, like we want that to be distributed renewable energy, but distributed energy sources that can isolate from the grid and run autonomously. And it turns, it's like the street lighting is just that opportunity to get this infrastructure in.
0: Why is the street lighting the opportunity?
1: It's one of them. I mean, there's, there's other opportunities, but basically anytime you're digging up the street to get a conduit in, you shouldn't just be thinking about that one conduit. So you asked earlier about like, what was that light bulb moment about how we're getting pulled into non-lighting kind of other opportunities is the rollout of 5G cellular. We had just written the City and County Denver Street Lighting Design Guide. And right after that, our project manager said, we're getting hit hard from all the carriers, all the cellular carriers on 5G rollout and they have to fast track these permits and applications. So they needed a design guide to basically get all that under control because none of these companies actually coordinate. they AT&T, want
0: t Verizon, whatever, they got their own ideas, timelines, contractors.
1: Yep. And they can bore their own conduit wherever they want and ruin other infrastructure underground that. You know, it's like, it's not a coordinated effort and it's, it's really kind of frustrating at times to see like, you know, it seems like it should be, we should be able to coordinate that in a better way, but they're private companies. They don't want to work with each other.
0: Hell no. Absolutely not. What's crazy is you're bringing in like the, again, not to make it political, but we're talking about a public mechanism, an institutional government that says like, this is the way things happen. Yet it's been built and the people that are in it, their number one reliance is on a privatized commodity, communication over cell and internet. Mm-hmm. So what happened?
1: That was our opportunity to say, we don't want the rollout of 5G. We, we saw that the, the, the spacing of 5G infrastructure was very similar to the spacing of streetlights and height, the height at which they're mounted. So looking at how they can combine that infrastructure so that we're not just adding two, three, four companies of different poles out there and, and street lighting and just cluttering the built environment and the public space. It's, it's already really tight. I mean, we, some spaces don't have enough room for sidewalks, you know, and, and here we're putting more poles in, that, in those spaces.
0: And to your point, it's not just a pole. It's a trench. It's an opportunity to clip a gas line, cut electrical, have to shut down public services to put this private service in. There's a lot that's yeah. going into this.
1: I guess another piece with the master planning of these efforts is how does this happen in an equitable way
0: who's paying for
1: it the large companies out there that are uh, their customers the you and i are yeah. paying for it absolutely yeah. yeah we're paying for it
0: we're buying 1500 yeah. phones mm-hmm. to pay for that absolutely. fiber absolutely wouldn't it be nice if my street lighting got upgraded at the same time wouldn't it be nice if the sidewalk i walked down while i was staring at the blue screen on my phone was safe yeah right right why not do all this together? That's your that's your point, right? The story with Denver is I think it's a unique one. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you were very successful in helping them not only understand, you know, one system but another and how to put them together and roll something out. Right. And that has become
1: somewhat of a model for other cities as well. How can we celebrate it?
0: How can we, you know, put lights on top of things that change colors how can we put digital signage up how can we do all these things right how can we iotify the city
1: and the, all of those things are have their place but ultimately what is smart for a city has to be you know part of that en- that engagement process what do the citizens need otherwise you're just applying things to what you perceive as maybe the issue or oh there's an opportunity to make this problem that might not be the biggest problem And then you're spending money in a misguided way.
0: I mean, you mentioned microgrids earlier. I want want to really Mm -hmm. like hone in on that. The smart city nature, I I think in a lot of the world, we're living in a modern space where these are amenities that quite frankly, we need. We're used to them. It's kind of how the world works. So let's get them there. But that does all create energy and energy distribution requires energy and infrastructure so on and so forth. So how is this all now kind of starting to come together Mm -hmm. to support that microgrid climate that is, as you said, something we need now? Yeah. Not five years from now.
1: And one of the barriers is funding and cost of that. But we're not planning first because microgrid works on the same kind of communication and fiber optics that all this other smart city stuff works on. So getting that fiber and conduit into the ground, interfacing with streetlights might be an opportunity for solar. And there's and, and where, where else is there solar? Where are you combining these things? It's just really creating the network, the city network. But then having this ability to create communities where you can now prioritize loads when there is an event
0: and understand or predict or measure in real yeah. time when you need that
1: right absolutely so when there's a power outage what are those critical pieces that need to be powered and get rid of the rest of it and lighting may be the lowest on that you know but we need to be able to say okay what can we where can we dim or turn off lights where do we need light for critical infrastructure for, for something that really needs needs
0: that light? privatization of cell phone companies and the public infrastructure of street and area lighting is colliding. And now there's more funding for the same infrastructure, right? The conduit may not even need to be that much bigger. And here's Clanton and Associates in the bullseye of it all. Expanding your boundaries, expanding your opportunity, expanding your way of thinking to different means and applying research. It's a beautiful thing you're putting lighting in the center of a conversation where it would have otherwise been potentially completely forgotten about and people would have you know whined and complained about how ugly the light pole is but how beautiful their sweet big freaking 5g tower is because the thing does need to be you know four times the size because of what you're putting on top of it in epa rings everything else you look at where we're at today in lighting and you look at all this other stuff you've seen and how it's just like colliding what's next where do you see the the world of lighting evolving you know what do you Mm -hmm. think this might do to challenge another technological revolution in our industry uh
1: well a lot of technology is there part of it is just a matter of utilizing it using it in the right way and being responsible so we're just thinking about where do you need light and when do you need it? So I guess one of the things we're struggling with still is outdoor motion sensors working consistently all the time. And so we're studying that. We're working with Pacific Northwest National Laboratories on figuring out like, what are the technologies that work better and pushing the manufacturers, well, how can we get more R&D in some of these areas that can work in all weather conditions? So I guess looking at where and when to light. Lighting controls are critical, I think, everywhere and and have experience exploded in the outdoor environment as well as the interior and everything it can get complicated if we look at this but it's like we're, we're by, by shielding and put, trying to keep light away from places we don't want light off of people's private properties out of their bedroom windows being able to tune the distribution to the specific application literally putting light where it needs to be that will increase not being efficiency. limited
0: to a type 3
1: not not type 2 not type 3 but type like type i need it here uh, yes exactly
0: mm-hmm. as you sit here and you start to put it all together. I think the biggest question I have is you have an opportunity as a consultant, as somebody who has devoted their time to understanding research and implementing a system for the better outcome of the community. And it's not limited to just like, it's not limited to just conduit or fiber or security. It's, it's all of this together. I don't even know if this is a fair question, but I'm going to ask it. Is the fact that like public and private coming together and like lighting and cell phone companies are going on the same infrastructure well, going you know, to support like the future of now lighting development yeah, and p- and stuff like that
1: oh that's interesting too you guess like some of these private public partnerships having funding where, where private industry is funding you know public infrastructure it's happening all over the place cuz cities can't afford they have very tight budgets that's what has funded a lot of the LED street lighting retrofits for many cities. So that model and how it applies to this infrastructure is going to be a big deal as well. You know, it's like we're talking about all these different facets. It may start to seem overwhelming, and it's overwhelming to us as well. But when we identify something that we're like, we don't know enough about this to be the experts in it, then find out who is. And really, I think another another one of Nancy's brilliances is being able to bring groups of people together and to continue that conversation and guide it toward the same common
0: goal. I think, you know, we started talking about the evolution of Clanton and someone like Nancy, who's just been a force in the industry and always pushed forward from the day of saying we can use less energy, even though the incandescent is the only thing out there and persevering and pushing forward and saying there is a way to make a difference. I know we can make a difference. Uh, and the beautiful thing is it's it's ended up here, rightfully deserved, as an opportunity to expand the boundaries of a lighting consultant company into a consultant of energy and everything that it requires and touches. When you look at your company today, you're the president, you're leading it, you guys are growing. What are you doing that you're most proud of right now that's just freaking cool to see as this transformation starts to happen,
1: I tell you, in the last couple of years, hiring the right people—I mean, you know, hiring people in general—has been difficult, and maintaining your staff, the work, the team all, as a whole. So, really, the the biggest accomplishment is hiring the fantastic people that are on our team. I mean, you know, it's it's not just Nancy or just me getting this done. It is every person on our team that uh, is putting their passion in. And you know, it's funny that as I talk to some of our newest staff and and everybody that that works with us. Almost everyone has their own little story about why they care about sustainability, why they care about dark skies. And it's funny, the dark sky piece (laughs) is almost one of the most personal ones. Either I grew up in Washington, DC, I never saw the stars and went on a trip to Texas and saw the stars for the first time. It's ethereal I mean, it, it really is mind-blowing. I grew up like that. I mean, I'm living here in Colorado. My dad worked for the Forest Service. We spent a lot of time out camping under the dark skies. Uh, so for me, that that passion came from my dad, the environmental piece. And, you know, it's fun to hear how others experience it. But, yeah, really, so that's that's the, the major accomplishment is hiring it's great people. people.
0: What do you feel like you're finding uh, success in hiring people? I don't know if you're going to give away all your secrets, but... It's, it's not easy to find the the right people for the right roles right now. I
1: can't say it's one thing. I mean, but but the I say the biggest most effective way is that personal touch. Uh, that actually that you know going to ex- experiencing Lightfare, going uh, expanding the word, just speaking. I I, I believe that a, well, a number of our uh, people, probably including me. <laughs> I knew I knew Nancy because I heard her speak before. I know what she's about. I know message and I want to work for that company.
0: It's about believing, you know, it, it's, it's about speaking about, uh, something that other people have in common with mm. you about something that really actually does matter. And then creating that forum and that environment and that outlet in a professional sense for people to put that passion to work, to create a career out of it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for just unpacking it and scratching the surface on everything that we, have you know, sort of touched on today. If people want to get in touch with you, if they want to continue to have this conversation, what's the best way they can get in touch with Dane? Uh, Email,
1: uh, LinkedIn, Uh, there's, you know, I I suppose, I don't know if if those things are available on LightEye. Oh, they'll they'll, uh,
0: they'll all be in the notes of the podcast. Yeah. You can look them up, Dane Sanders.
1: Um, And and our website too, just clintonassociates.com. That Those, any message left on there, will get to me.
0: That'll get to him. Dane, yeah. thank you so much for your time. It's good to chat. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting, who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers.